Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 20, season 2 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout the month of June, we have been going through the scientific textbook by Hallam Hawksworth, entitled The Strange Adventures of a Pebble. And we have gone through the first week of June, chapter 1, entitled In the Beginning. Then we went to chapter 5, The Fairylands of Change. Chapter 9 was last week, In the Lands of the Lakes. And so, I felt it fitting for the final week of June to read the final chapter. Chapter 12, The End of the World. Now, you may be tempted to think in your mind, oh, this is going to be an apocalyptic take on the end of the world. And I'm just going to say, to preface this, it is actually far from that. So, let us begin then, reading chapter 12, The End of the World. December. A fire mist and a planet, a crystal and a cell. A jellyfish and a saurian, and caves where the cavemen dwell. Then, a sense of law and beauty, and a face turned from the clod. Some call it evolution, and others call it God. William Herbert Carruth The End of the World so the Ice Ages and their glaciers and the Romans and their Caesars melted away. We know them only by the marks they left on the walls of time. But why this constant doing and undoing of things? We have seen it going on from the very, very beginning. Rock crumbling to dust, dust changing back to rock. Rocks raised up into the mountains, mountains worn down to plains, then more mountains, and on and through the same cycle of endless change, as if always starting the whole thing all over again. What is it all about? Are we getting anywhere? If so, where? Ever since men looked out upon the world around them and began to think, they have puzzled not only about the causes, but the purpose of this endless drama of creation and decay. Some said one thing, some said another. The Persian poet, who wrote those fine lines about the lion and the lizard in the ruins of palaces, meant to say, that's all that everything comes to. All things, men included, return to the elements of which they were made. And that's the end of them. So, said he, what's the use of bothering one's head about it? There's nothing to be learned. One verse of his famous song reads like this. Myself, when young, did eagerly frequent, doctor and saint, and heard great argument, about it and about, <laughs> but evermore, came out by the same door, wherein I went. But science, as we shall now see, has a better answer. 1. Nothing happens. In the first place, 
You must have noticed as we came along through this little book that nothing happens in this world of ours. Everything is under a government of laws. Not only did it turn out that there was a method in the apparent madness of the sea, but we found method everywhere. It was not chance that made our worlds, whether they were born full, grown, or grew up piece by piece. And we see the same forces at work in small things as in the great. The force that keeps the earth in its orbit is just as careful to catch and plant the tiny seeds of the grasses and the pine trees drifting forward in the wind, so keeping the world clothed with life and verdure. So with the seasons, with all that they mean in the life of the world. Spring never fails to follow winter. Little things happen that make spring late, as we say, but spring itself never fails to come, and always in its right place in the procession of the year. All this because the Earth stays in its orbit and spins on its axis. Watches break their mainsprings. Clocks run down. These things happen. But we never think of saying that the mainspring or the wheels happened, or that they happened into their places in the watch. The worlds not only make their appointed round as regularly as the wheels of a watch, but they never run down, and the power that keeps them going and in their places never breaks. If it ever occurred in any other way, if we should hear of a world flying out of its orbit and going banging round among the other worlds, we could talk of happening. We might call these laws, that make it so certain that nature's business will go on as usual, rain or shine, the accident insurance of the universe. We have nothing quite like it in the human insurance systems, for these only make it up to you the best they can after some accident has happened. Nature's insurance system, on the other hand, makes it certain that nothing will happen to change the main course of things. The protective insurance of the universe is woven right through nature itself. The continents, for example, were bound, in due course, to rise in their places, because it is the nature of cooling masses to shrink, and for the outside to cool the faster, and to harden, and to wrinkle up. It doesn't matter whether the cooling mass is a little baked apple or a big hot earth, nor was it an accident that the continents in their original form grew larger with the fat of the land that was added to them under the action of the chemistry of the air. You see, nature must understand chemistry or things wouldn't come out right in the laboratory, as they always do if you had made no mistakes. Ever think of that, Mr. High School Boy? 2. The strangest thing of all that didn't happen. But the strangest thing of all that didn't happen in this history of the world and its making, I'm going to tell you about now. You remember what I said of the apple tree in Chapter 5? How nobody who didn't know it to be true would believe that little Miss Greenleaf and old Mr. Root and rough Mr. Bark and lovely Miss Blossom 
were not only born under the same roof, but were as closely related as a pussycat and her nest full of kittens. I didn't mention the kittens then, but just suppose I had done so, and then had gone on to say that kittens are relations of the apple family, and that all birds are related to all kittens, and that both are kindred of that terrible Mr. Sessiosaurus that we met in the badlands of Dakota. Would you have believed it? No? Well, I don't wonder. It was quite a while before the wise men of science believed it. Now, not only is this idea of the origin of all living things, animal and vegetable, universally accepted by men of science, but every educated person is supposed to know about it. It is always, and as a matter of course, put into the school book's dealings with the history of nature. Just as in all histories, we are sure to see Columbus landing in 1492, and George Washington being inaugurated April 30th, 1789. Most people, including the scientists, used to think that each kind of plant and animal was given its present form in the first place, and that this form had never changed. This was known as the special creation theory. Well, the idea that the various kinds of plants and animals we now know gradually developed from quite different forms is called the theory of evolution. Among the curious facts that finally led educated people everywhere to believe this strangest of all strange fairy tales of the land and science were these. The remains and imprints of plant and animal life of long ago, which we find in the rocks, show successions of related but different forms in the rocks of different ages. At the beginning, in the lowest rocks, the forms are much alike, but grow more and more unlike as we climb these stairs of time. At first, there are no animals with backbones. Then there come animals with backbones that resemble each other in general build. And finally, such wide varieties of backboned creatures as fish, birds, horses, and men. And so with endless varieties of birds and beasts and creeping things, and the trees and the grasses of the fields. Sometimes the differences between these apparently related forms, as we find them in the rocks, are very great. But everything goes to show that this is because they are missing pages, so to speak, in the great stone book. When you remember how long it takes to make one of these layers of stone, and what they go through in cracking and twisting, and wearing down on their way back to dust and the sea, and how quickly the remains of big animals, to say nothing of plants and insects, are destroyed, you must agree that the wonder is that we have any records at all. Yet so enormous has been the number of plants and animals that have died in the course of the world's history that there have been found hundreds and thousands of these remains and imprints between the layers of stone. In all cases, the fashions in form change from age to age, and the longer the time, as shown by the thickness of the rock, the greater the change. The horse 
which has been such a faithful carrier for man since man and horse arrived from the lower ranges of life, also brought with him on the way up one of the most complete of these strange autobiographies that our brother animals have recorded with their bones. The most of this story of the horse was found in the rocks of our western states, but the first chapter of it saw the light about 40 years ago in England, when the bones were found in the rock deposits of that country known as London Clay, they looked so unhorse-like that a famous paleontologist, as the students of these ancient anatomies are called, gave it a name which means rabbit-like beast. But in a rock of the same age in Wyoming, they afterward found the bones of an animal that looked a little more like a horse, but plainly a close relation of the rabbit-like beast. They went on finding different forms through 13 successive stages of rock history, and with each new period, the form kept getting larger and more horse-like until they came to a horse with three toes, and finally to one with the single big toe, which we call a hoof. Instead of the other two toes, there were those two little lumps that you can feel in any horse's foot just above the hoof. These are the ends of the two splint-like bones that are all there is left of the other two toes. So there have been found in the rock records more or less complete serial stories of thousands of plants and animals. In the case of man, not only do we find there was once human beings on the earth like the caveman with low forehead and huge jaw, but nothing has ever been found to indicate that there were any higher types of human beings in existence in his day. And both the caveman and the handsomest human beings of today, the captain of our football team, for example, have essentially the same bodily framework as the monkey tribe. This does not mean that man, even so low a creature as the caveman, descended from monkeys, any more than the fact that he has a backbone means he descended from hummingbirds. But the backbones in hummingbirds, monkeys, and men show that all are descended from older types of backboned creatures, as monkeys and men are much more alike than men and birds, they are evidently more closely related. We might suppose, to be sure, that men and all other forms of life which they resemble in any way were made so from the beginning. That is, if we hadn't learned from the records of the rocks that they weren't so made from the beginning. Yet, even after that, we might go on supposing that each species was created separately, but that the form was changed from age to age. But in that case, what are you going to say to this? <clears throat> In man's body are several organs that are useless and often harmful. Other animals also contain among useful organs some that are out of date, as we would say, if we were speaking of some old machines in a machine shop. Why, in making a brand new species, shouldn't nature have all the latest improvements from the start, just as man does in building a brand new home? If each species was separately created, it is hard to understand why these 
useless or harmful organs should be kept. But if one species grew out of another by gradual improvement, just as cities grow out of villages, this is exactly what we might expect. One of these useless organs in man is called the vermiform appendix. It is always getting its name in the papers by giving trouble to some prominent man. Now this appendix, while a perfect nuisance to human beings, is just the thing for cows and other grass-eating animals. In them, it is very large and of great use in digestion, while in the case of man and the monkey family, it has shrunk into a little affair that puts in all its time either doing nothing or getting out of fix. 3. Upward. Always upward. These are some of the reasons why the various varieties of animals are supposed to have descended from common ancestors and to have undergone endless changes of form. Changes as strange as anything that was ever written into a fairy story or acted out in a Christmas pantomime. There are other things quite as convincing and even more thrilling to read about, such as the little theater in the chicken's egg where strange, changing shadows reenact the drama of ancient life. But these I am here passing by because my pages are running out and I want the rest of them to speak of what seems to me to be the greatest lesson of this whole book the greatest and most useful and happiest lesson science or any kind of book can teach. Namely, that not only is the universe governed by laws and mind, but that all these laws act together as one great law and are working out one general result. The constant advance of all things toward a higher life. As there was a period in human history where there were no human beings on earth higher than the cave dweller, so there was a time when the highest forms of animal and vegetable life were minute creatures and plants consisting only of a single cell. It is such low forms of vegetable life that make the scum on the still waters of a pond. Step by step, in both the animal and vegetable world, rose the higher forms. The descent of man from lower forms of life used to be considered by many people as a thought that degraded humanity. But it is the most promising fact in all nature. The striking thing is, not that we are related in some way to the apes and the cavemen, but that such a creature as an ape or a caveman should have helped develop such a beautiful thing as a little child. This progress has not been steadily upward. The world of life, like the surface of the globe itself, has had its ups and downs. Wonderful nations like Greece and Rome have risen and flourished and passed away, but they left best of themselves, the part that time cannot destroy. The Greeks taught us literature and art and the grace of life. 
The Romans gave us a science of government and a solid way of doing practical things, such as the building of good roads and bridges. The great lesson of history is that civilization and human liberty and all the things that make life worth living have not only survived the fall of empires, but stand today on higher and firmer ground than they ever did before. But do you know what was at the bottom of it all? Mother. All the things that men have done in the development of national life, with its arts and industries, everything we call civilization, grew out of the life and industry of the home. And it was mother who finally made the home. The mother idea came into the world with the first seed that ever started out to make its own way, for the mother plant had provided it with food enough to keep it going until it could get well, established in business. But the kind of mothers we know, um, mothers who stay with their babies and feed them, come very late in the long story of life. In the early days, the world was not only without flowers and birds and the beautiful trees and varied landscapes we know, but it was motherless, in the sense that we understand mothers today. In the lowest forms of life, such as the insects, the mothers and children never saw each other at all. For among the insects, just as it is today, the mother simply laid the eggs and then, before the little insects were born, passed away. Even among the fish, who are much closer relations of ours than the insects, since fish belong to the great brotherhood of the backbone, the sense of motherhood doesn't get beyond looking after the eggs. So with the next higher group, to which the frogs belong, and the next, the reptiles. Only with the birds, the next group above the reptiles, do we begin to see what motherhood means. Then, at the very top of the list, come the class of animals whose very name has mama in it. The mammalia. Among these, even outside the human race, we find very striking examples of family, love, and devotion. The gorillas, for instance, although they haven't what one would call an attractive face, are good to their folks. Not only does Mama Gorilla nurse her babies and carry them in her arms, much as a human mother does, and fight and die for them, but a famous African traveler tells of a Mama Gorilla who stayed safe with the babies in their humble home of sticks in the fork of a tree, while Papa Gorilla sat all night at the foot of it, with his back against the trunk, to protect them from a leopard that had been seen prowling around. Among most animals below man, the babies are soon able to leave mother and shift for themselves. But in the case of human beings, the baby is helpless for a much longer time. So, even among the lowest savages, it was necessary for father and mother to keep together and look after their children. Thus grew up family life, and out of the family, the tribe, and out of many tribes living together and closely related, grew first small, and then larger nations, yet always at the beginning, 
It was the mother, more than the father, who looked after the children and taught them, so bringing before the world the idea of doing things, not for oneself alone, but for others. From this came the mutual giving and helping which made national life possible, and that is making this a better and better world to live in. 4. The Great Unseen So, it is very plain, not only that the end, the purpose of all this machinery and march of things that we have been going through since the beginning of chapter 1 is to make life better, more beautiful, both in form and character, but to show that all nature is on the side of those who try to rise. It is plain also that this end must have been foreseen and intended from the beginning, for from the very start, each change in the world and in life was a preparation for another and greater change. The change from rock to soil made plant life possible. The growth of plants made animal life possible, and so on up through the long succession of changes in this tree of life by which all things have related and which give us the infinite variety of good things we already have. Fruit, homes, churches, schools, art galleries, books, railroads and steamships that make the whole world neighbors. The telegraph, the newspapers and the magazines that carry thought and knowledge and plans for the common good so fast and far that it is already as if a whole nation with its millions had a heart and brain in common. Man himself, you see, has become one of the greatest forces of nature in the evolution of nature, in the blossoming out and fruit-bearing of things. But now notice this. Back of all that man does and all that the rest of nature does is the great controlling force called mind. And this mind is invisible. If I should say of some great man that he had a powerful mind, you would know just what I meant. But if anybody should ask, what did his mind look like? You would think that was an odd question, wouldn't you? So it is and has been from the beginning. We can see the results of changes of one thing into another, but never just how the changing is done. While it is no longer believed that species were given a certain form in the beginning, and that they've always kept that form, it is still true that each species comes into being from some unseen cause, all of a sudden, as it were. Because species thus seem to vary of themselves, and not for any reason that we can see, these changes are called spontaneous variations. Always, back of the material nature we can see, is a nature that is not material. A, a part of nature that, like the mind of man, we can neither see, nor hear, nor feel, nor know by any of our five senses. Some unseen power forms the baby plant out of the seed. Some power 
changes the leaves, hidden away in the bud, into the petals of the flower. When the leaves gather to form the bud, like little hands playing, Button, button, who's got the button? Where do you suppose the flower is? It isn't. It's not yet begun to be. But soon, as if some magician had waved his hand and said, Presto, change! The pink petals begin to form there in the dark of the cup. And, first thing we know, out steps Miss Blossom, all in her pink and gold, like a princess dressed for a ball. But always hidden in a mystery, these changes take place. We can peep into a growing bud as often as we like, and we will never catch the fairies making the dress, nor the princess putting it on. We always see the thing after it is done. Another thing. How do the fairies of Roseland remember every spring just how a rose looked? when the roses of last year have been dead and gone so long. You see, they work without a model, something great artists seldom do. And in some kinds of work, as busts and portraits and landscapes never do at all. Even the most powerful microscope doesn't show any pattern in the seed, for the seed to go by in growing into the finished plant, or in an egg to tell it what kind of bird it is expected to be. No, not the trace of a pattern. What then guides the growth of the seed? Uh, of an oak, say, so that it finally and always takes the family form? Some power, evidently, as intelligent as the power that moves the hand of the human artist when he paints that oak into his landscape. How many of us have stopped to think that not only in the world of mind, but in the material world itself, all forms of power are as invisible as the fairies that work unseen in the rosebud, and the little bird's egg, and the big rock. All power, what we call steam power, wind power, electric power, and the rest, are not only unseen, but unseeable unfeelable, untastable. We know steam power only when heat gets into the water and makes steam. Electric power only when it gets into wire or dynamo, or passing by unseen ways through the air moves the wireless telegraph receiver. Gravity power only when it moves something as the water of a waterfall, or when it is helping to hold things the earth and other worlds, in their appointed paths. End of chapter 12. And so we see that the end of the world that this chapter is entitled is not an apocalyptic end, but a purpose-driven end that is being described. I, Hogsworth argues that nothing just happens, but there is a natural law that safeguards the earth into doing things not randomly, but in a predictable and fortuitous order. We can see the loose progression of the earth, of course, through rock, since this book is indeed entitled 
the strange adventures of a pebble, which at this point, it's not really about a pebble, but you know what? For all literary intents and purposes, it is. And so he uses the example of like the backboned horse, how it was at one fossil, they described it as like a rabbit-like horse. And then somebody else found a more progressed version of the horse, I guess, with three toes. And then it went down to one with like the two little nubs on it. So we got the hoof. Okay. So Hawksworth makes the case that an evolution of species over time makes the most sense as to how the earth and mankind could have possibly developed into a more self-sustaining and better version of themselves. That's what the end of the world is, is to continually make a higher, better version of the previous generation. And we see that, right? Because he talks about how, like, we build as humans off the backs of the people and resources before us, right? We have at our disposal, you know, he references the Greeks and the Romans and those types of things. And ultimately, what makes mankind unique in their development from the animals of the earth is that we as young children are nurtured by our mothers for a much longer period than any other creature on this earth. And so Hawksworth is, takes the time to stress the importance the family unit plays in humans being taught how to not just do things for their own self-interest, but also to do things in the interests of others, which I agree with him on this point, okay? I, I believe the family unit is incredibly important to the formation of a child um, into adulthood. I understand different situations allow for different circumstances. I get it. But on a whole, um, the moment we see a collapse in our family structure organically is a very dark moment indeed. However, Hawksworth acknowledges throughout all of this that this design of the world and its order must have had an artist, as he puts it, that we cannot quite see except through the end result of something he calls spontaneous variations, right? We can see the results of an action like the invisible force of like steam power or electric power or something like that like that we see the end result and he says well it had to have had something to spur it on and he kind of touches on this you know in chapter five the fairylands of change and he uses the the terminology of a fairy to enact the the change the crystallization of a rock after it cools down from being heated and then you know crystallizes and so this is what i believe okay the end of the world to this point to point to okay it points to an intelligent designer uh, namely god okay and through the eyes of science we can see most clearly how he formed and designed the systems that make this world functional and self-sustaining and through the bible we can actually know him and see his larger intervening plan and work in humanity to draw us to himself so that we can relate to him on a personal level even yet today and so on that point as well i'm in i'm in concurrence with him like yes there has to be 
a designer that integrated all these systems into place. Yet, in spite of the natural order of things revealed in Hawksworth's textbook, one thing that we do see happening today is how many humans are fascinated with progressing the natural order quicker than the millions of years described in this textbook it normally takes for the evolution of man and creation to be seen. Now, puts me in a little bit of a bind because I work in the technology sector, okay? Um, and as a technologist, one of my favorite philosophies to study on the quickening evolution of mankind is what is known as transhumanism. Essentially, <laughs> their whole idea is that the next evolution of mankind will be found when technology fully and completely merges and integrates with humans to extend our lives indefinitely. It's kind of like a biotechnology of sorts. And I mean, proponents argue that the evidences of the beginning of this transformation have actually already started with the integration of like smartphones, for instance, and other smart technologies that we are finding we cannot leave our homes without, right? I feel like you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who, you know, doesn't leave their home without their phone on them. Yes, it's separate from the human body, but people almost treat it like an appendage. You know, you ever hear that phrase like, man, I didn't have my, you know, what, pocket knife or something on me. I felt really naked without it type of thing. That pocket knife is becoming our smartphones. If we leave the house with a smartphone without our smartphones, we know it, right? Like all of a sudden you're like, man, something doesn't feel right, you know? And then you go to reach for it when you're in your car or when you're, you know, out and about at the grocery store or something. And then you're just like, man, oh my gosh, I forgot my phone, you know, type of thing. And so they're already saying, transhumanists are already saying, we've already entered the initial stages of merging with technology. It's just not connected to our bodies at the present moment. So then you pair that with the rapid expansion of our inter internet-based infrastructures and technologies. I mean, I won't go into an incredible amount of detail, but you know, our IP address structure, IP addresses being the numbers, series of numbers that are assigned to an internet-connected device to be able to connect it to the internet has expanded. We were originally under version 4, which had a significant amount of IP addresses it could assign to internet-based devices. But as of this recording, I believe we've already run out. And so we've been transitioning to something called IP version 6. I have no clue what happened to version 5. But version 6 allows for something in the realm of like 20 quintillion quintillion IP addresses or something crazy like that. So it adds a more nuanced um, structure. Uh, it incorporates uh, letters with the numbers, and it gives you more um, octets. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it gives you it gives you more numbers to work with and more combinations to assign to internet-based devices. So we're even expanding that out, right? And then the beginnings of the world are becoming so interconnected with our devices over the internet that potentially nascent ideas like augmented reality, the idea that you're able to interact with digital objects 
or uh, people that are superimposed on the real world with the aid of like, you know, goggles, glasses, whatever you want to call them. And then also the idea of virtual reality, that you're completely submerged in a virtual world, kind of like uh, Ready Player One, if you're familiar with that. Uh, those types of technologies, I believe we may even yet see the beginning of those close to the end of our lives um, because they'll eventually largely be perceived as more livable and practical than reality itself. So this is how we see man wrestling with its its mortality, right? Um, transhumanists ultimate end goal and there was a presidential candidate in 2016 named Zoltan Istvan who ran under this platform of transhumanism because uh, he went through a, a near-death experience in his life and he did not want anybody else to experience what he went through and he gravitated toward the philosophy of transhumanism and uh, their end goal is to extend the human life indefinitely so you got like you know cryogenics I believe that they're they're looking into those types of things as a way to you know extend the human life you know for forever essentially so that you don't have to experience death and yet that is the great equalizer time waits for no person and so um, there is no way to extend somebody's life here on earth indefinitely um, now also what ultimately puts me in a bind on the transhumanist movement is because I'm in technology this should be something that I should be like yeah let's do this however I myself failed to see the pragmatic aspect of practicality because other than it's just a stepping stone to build yet another technological revolution that could potentially go beyond computers but but despite my job being dependent upon technology I, I personally don't believe that reality needs to be artificially improved to the level and extent that transhumanists or AR or VR is proposing technology should all be always be utilized in a complementary way but never to replace the genuine article, right? Like, reality is good. Like, it's a good thing to experience. We need to wrestle with the painful moments of our lives, you know, and stop using technology as an excuse for escapism. But I digress because I feel like we could go down an entirely different rabbit hole. But anyway, this is that chapter, right? I will include some resources that I pulled about transhumanism into my show notes. Um, next week... We are going to be going through um, speeches, okay? That's like the category for July that I'm choosing to focus on. Um, not necessarily a very boring speech, uh, just because it just happens to be July 4th. I'm going to go through a very well-known um, patriotically emotional speech entitled Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death by Patrick Henry. Um, and so... I'm going to read that in a dramatic fashion, and uh, we can discuss that more. And then at past that, I'm just going to be reading more boring speeches and putting a little bit of a, you know, flair and, you know, fun twist um, to make them, like, really engaging, you know, where you're just like, man, I wish I would have heard this person, you know, 
speak this out. I would have loved to listen to them. Anyway, um, thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I am so, so, I have so much gratitude um, for even, even those people that are, that are coming out consistently to listen. Um, appreciate the support, appreciate the love. Um, I hope you guys have an incredible uh, week, an incredible 4th of July. Um, as they say in show business, my name's Phil Olson, and that's all he wrote. <laughs>